I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor. And we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 168. This time around, writer, director, and producer Ryan Spindell, actor Caitlin Custer, and actor and producer Clancy Brown. They're joining you to talk about their brand new horror flick, The Mortuary Collection, available on Shudder beginning October 15th at time of release. Learn all about the challenges and innovation in crafting an indie film into an absolutely massive and gorgeous stunner. That will be talked about forever in this genre. What a phenomenal piece of work this is with unforgettable performances, amazing gore courtesy of ADI, perfect for the Halloween season. We had a blast with this crew and this film. Don't miss it. Episode 168 starts now. This is Ryan Sindel. I'm Clancy Brown. And I'm Caitlin Custer. You are opening the book for another terrifying episode of the Boo Crew. This poor soul's journey has come to an end. From dust we started, to dust we return. Every corpse tells a story. It is our task to listen. So these are all stories about how people died. Some tales even I find too unsettling to recount. She's dead! You gotta get that body out of your apartment. Keep your doors locked tonight and keep an eye out for crazies. Monsters! That's pretty cool. Yes, it is, isn't it? Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew in the Speakeasy studio are the three inspired and inspiring creators behind one of the most fun and twisted horror films you will see all year. It has most certainly crawled into our list of all-time favorites. Here with us, a writer, director, and producer whose vision, his attention to detail, his obvious reverence, admiration, and respect for not only the horror genre, but the art of storytelling, drips from his work. It is why he has won an unprecedented 18 awards for his short films, including The Babysitter Murders and Kirksdale. We are talking Fantastic Fest, Nightmares, Dead by Dawn, the Stanley Film Festival, and more. His latest work also includes Sam Raimi's 50 States of Fright series on Quibi. Also, here's a legendary actor who has woven himself into the very DNA of entertainment history, film and TV projects that have informed a passion and genre for all of us and continue to be why we love what we love, like the Dukes of Hazard, the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the Eighth Dimension, Highlander, Shoot to Kill, Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery 2, Tales from the Crypt. He played Captain Hadley in the seven-time Oscar-nominated Shawshank Redemption, Starship Troopers, the list is endless, and a voiceover resume of the best-loved and animated shows of all time from the little mermaid justice league spongebob squarepants star wars and more finally a captivating performer with a magnetic presence who has brought her talents to the seven-time award-nominated series greek emmy award and six-time golden globe nominated csi the iconic dallas mtv's critically acclaimed teen wolf 2015's extraction among many others she brings a thrilling zest 
to her roles. It awakens the imagination and she just has that X factor that you can't put your finger on it. And it leaves you with a yearning to fall into her stories again and again. The alchemy of these three has resulted in their latest work, The Mortuary Collection, exclusively on Shudder. We are honored to welcome Ryan Spindell, Clancy Brown, and Caitlin Custer. Yeah! Yeah! You don't really talk like that, do you? You know, you know, that's like... What an introduction. Wow, that's like... I think think you just gotta get... Put us in the ground right now. Right out loud. What the heck? Well, you are outside a mortuary, so... (laughs) So, wow, you guys. What a gift this movie is. And I mean that from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much on behalf of horror fans everywhere for making this and taking us on this journey. We can't tell you how delighted we were to check this out. Oh, um, that's amazing. I mean, I listened to the show. I know you're always killer at these intros. Uh, I was like, is he going to be able to find enough material to do mine? Ah. <laughs> mind blown. Wait, you have to tell me, are, are you, do you practice those or are you just shooting from the hip? Because that's incredible. <laughs> oh, well, wow. Thank, Thank you. you so much. But it's, it's a thousand yeah. percent. Seriously, we can't think of enough good things to say about what you all accomplished with this. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. It's, it's an honor to be here. This is so cool. We can't wait to get a look at what created the emphatic and classic creative vocabulary that we became a part of through this experience. So going through each one of you, we'll start with Ryan. What were your first experiences with the horror genre as a viewer? I had a a traumatic experience when I was really young with Nightmare on Elm Street that turned me off of the genre for a really long time. I think I saw that movie when I was five and, and I couldn't watch any horror until I was probably 12 or 13. And I, I would go through great lengths to avoid it at all costs. I'd get sick at Halloween parties. I would sort of do anything to keep my friends from knowing that I was the biggest wimp on the block. And uh, by the time I was, I think I was 12, I think it was eighth grade. And my friend brought over a copy of Evil Dead 2. And uh, I was 12. So I was too old to pretend that I, uh, uh, or to, to not like horror movies or to at least pretend like I didn't like horror movies. And so I basically uh, agreed to watch it and nervously sat down and we put the bootleg copy in. And um, it was the first movie. I remember this, this, this day, like it was yesterday in that just seeing the creativity and the sort of audacity and the sort of uh, just everything that was Sam Raimi kind of bleeding through in every frame really inspired me. And it kind of, I guess I'd always thought horror movies had to be one thing. I thought they had to be, you know, hacking up teenagers in the woods and I didn't realize there could be real artistry and real magic there. And so that movie, uh, and then a week later, I watched um, Dead Alive, uh, a.k.a. Brain Dead. And those two were really the one-two punch that sort of drew me into the genre because I realized all of the sort of, all of my art nerd background and my, my love of comics and my love of sort of building things and practicality and sort of problem solving kind of came to life through the process. Uh, and so then, of course, I became a, an obsessive fan and have watched everything since sort of all, all the different subgenres, all the different angles, but I'm, I've always sort of returned back to sort of those auteur directors that really have sort of a, a love for the craft and of storytelling and uh, audiovisual. Have you gone back and watched Nightmare on Elm Street? Because I had a similar experience. I was traumatized by it, but I have an issue watching it now. It still like scares me. Have you gone back and watched it? It's been a really long time, but but I, I feel like I would be in the same place. Yeah, just because it's it was such a visceral experience. I was way too young to be watching it at the time. And But I mean, those are maybe my favorite 
of the slasher sort of, you know, the classic slasher franchises, because I love how sort of imaginative they are. But at the time, it, the imagination was not the thing that was ringing to me. It was just like utter dread. Fast forward to today and you see the poster for your movie with a big quote from Sam Raimi on the front, a twisted tapestry of grisly fun and endlessly inventive terror. How does that feel? <laughs> Sounds like you wrote it. <laughs> Touche. Surreal. Surreal. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a dream come true. Obviously I, I met Sam. Actually, Sam got a copy of the mortuary collection sort of way early when we first had finished the edit. And, uh, and that's how I ended up working with him last year on his series, 50 States of Fright. And uh, we had such a good experience working together that when I reached out to him and I was like, you like the movie, right? And he's like, I love it. And I was like, will you say something about it? And within minutes, he sent me this amazing quote. And I was just like, my hands were shaking and it's still surreal. It doesn't feel like, like a real thing even now as we speak about it. Oh, it's amazing. Caitlin, your first experiences with horror. Oh, man. I remember being introduced to horror with Pet Cemetery. <laughs> um, a really fun one. I was I, like Ryan saying, he's probably far too young to be watching, you know, some of the movies he was watching. I, same, same with me. I think I was like probably six or seven when I first saw that. I still remember it. And then House on Haunted Hill had a really big influence on me for horror. Still like, yeah. Um, the Creeping Flesh. Do you guys remember that? Do you guys? No, I've not seen that. Oh my gosh. It was in black and white. And I think it was done in like the 1930s. I swear for the rest of like my young, I, up until I was like probably 16, I slept with my, my hands underneath my pillow. It was this skeleton. It was this guy, this like mummy. They found this, this finger. They cut off this, this guy's finger. And then he like came back and was looking for his fingers, this mummy. It was so that had a really big influence on me. As was well. I in that? <laughs> um yeah so <laughs> no. so that was my introduction to horror and then obviously working on this film i hadn't done a lot of horror as an actress like i hadn't done a, i think i had done teen wolf and it was kind of that it's not really horror but there was definitely some supernatural stuff in it and i got sucked out of a window and um i got eaten by wolves or something like that i don't remember but um <laughs> doing this film was I love Ryan's style and so it kind of sucked me in because he was he had a very stylized way of shooting things and I really respected that from the very beginning so this was this was a fun one. Caitlin were you resistant to do it knowing it was a horror movie when we first came out to you? I don't think so I think that I was kind of like oh horror like I definitely at the time was like really kind of like I didn't want to be like put into a niche of like, oh, she's a horror actress. Cause I had done like a few things that were kind of like leading in that direction. Cause I, you know, maybe I just have that look, I don't know. But I was like, I think I really want to do this. And then Sam, my husband had really encouraged me to do it. Cause he was like, yeah, this guy's really good. Like this director's really good. The writing's really good. Like do it, you know, like it'll be fun. And so I think I was excited. Yeah, I was really pumped. It was a long time ago. <laughs> That's cool. Would you suggest like, sorry, I, I'm not, not trying to take over this thing. No, this is great. Would you suggest other actors who maybe are resistant to the genre to sort of check, check it out and sort of get into it a little bit more to see what it is? Or, or did you feel like, do you feel like you have to have a certain type of uh, personality to do it? Yeah, no, I think that, I think every actor should do horror. <laughs> I think it's so fun. Like if the script is good and the, and the team is good and the writing's good, 
it's so fun doing it. Like everybody should check it out. Like, cause, cause like what you're saying before, like before you had said there is magic and there is creativity that can be put into this genre instead of just like being like, you know, hacking kids up in the, in the woods. And I think when you are working with someone like you who has such a vision for it, then it's really awesome to be a part of a project that's like that. Thank you. Well, we'll throw it to Clancy and go uh, back to your first experiences with horror and also piggybacking off this, what you enjoy about playing in the genre space as a performer. Oh, Callie, what's my first? I don't know, man. I'm pretty old. Uh, You know, I I, I probably saw some Hammer uh, show at the local theater in the small town where I grew up one afternoon at the matinee, you know, maybe like Dracula, Prince of Darkness had an opening that I recall and that was a sequel uh, or yeah, it was a sequel that from uh, the horror of Dracula, which was a huge hit for hammer. So they did Dracula Prince of darkness and it was uh, Christopher Lee as Dracula. And it kind of starts a little slow. And then uh, the most horrible thing. And really the only thing I remember from it is um, they drug or they kill one of these, one of these guys. It's a, there's two couples traveling, through Pennsylvania or wherever, you know, and um, they, they stay in this creepy castle and, uh, and uh, like one of the guys gets drugged or, or snuck up on and killed. And his girlfriend watches as he, as the, their host drags him down to the basement and then hoists him up by his feet over this crypt and cuts his throat. And like all this blood pours out into the crypt and then, that sort of reanimates from dust um, in what would be considered now a totally cheesy effect. Christopher Lee comes to life, but then it was completely horrifying and, you know, almost made me throw up and all the rest of that stuff. But yeah, that was, that was probably my scariest moment. It's not the scariest movie I've ever seen. The scariest movie I ever saw by far was exorcist. And then maybe, you know, the devils by, I don't know if you've ever seen that. That's just, that's just a terrifying movie. It's not really a horror movie, but it kind of is a horror movie, but it's all true. You know, it's like one of those, this really happened kind of thing. You ever heard of that? Nick no. Rogue, the devils. It's really twisted. Who's in it? Uh, Ryan. I don't know. I've never seen it. Or- oh, you've never heard of it. No. Okay. So it, it, it's all about the inquisition and you've got some nuns and, and then you've got a, a father that uh, kind of uh, uses the nuns as his, as his uh, harem. And, and then the Inquisition comes and they investigate and what they, they end up torturing people. And it's just, it's just horrible. And Nick Rogue doesn't really show you that much. You know, there's not a lot of blood or anything, but the suggestion and the soundtrack is, is overwhelmingly horrible. And maybe he was using some subliminal cuts as well. The Haunting was also really funny. That That's a fun and scary one. The original one that uh, Robert Wise directed right after he directed Sound of Music. That's pretty terrifying. And has spawned a couple of, uh, of uh, remakes as well that aren't as good. We'll go to the second part of that question. As a performer, you've done it basically all including horror and genre. What freedoms exist as a performer to push yourself in genre and horror filmmaking? Um, well, you know, horror especially is like, that's, that's like in our DNA, right? That's like we, every culture, every 
every kid, everybody knows about horror. Everybody knows these morality tales. Everybody knows the fairy tales. Everybody, everybody knows that there's consequences for behavior or not consequences for behavior. Everybody knows there's horrors out there. I mean, every parent knows it and every kid gets it drilled into their head. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's elemental. So you kind of got to do it. You got to do it. You got to like go into that part of your psyche. If I was as good looking as Caitlin, <laughs> um, then I would get to have the kind of fun that Caitlin gets to have in it. And, you know, then you get to trick people. You get to be this cute blonde thing, rock, you know, rocking out on the radio and, you know, making spaghetti or whatever she's making. You know, you get to and being a smart aleck and, you know, saying all the cool words. And then and then you get to, like, turn around and completely flip people on their on their keisters by what the story really is. I don't want to do any spoilers for me. I'm usually in some kind of a mask or something. So, you know, I get to hide behind whatever the makeup is. And, and in this case, the words, you know, Ryan's words were great. So, you know, it's just, I, I just don't think you can go too far sometimes. Maybe Ryan will tell you otherwise, but you know, you, you can't get too big and you can't get too, too crazy with it. I don't know, Ryan, did I go too far or should, should I have gone farther? I don't know. No, 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 man. I think you were perfect. I think one of the things you would always say that I that really stuck with me is you would always say, when I would say cut, you would say, uh, uh, again, faster, funnier, faster, funnier. Would be a and I do, I do to this day kind of regret not like just doing that more. And she'd be like, let's see what faster and funnier looks like. Just uh, this movie does run two hours, so it probably wouldn't have hurt us too well. <laughs> there you go. So Ryan, this all kind of started off with your 2015 short, if I'm not mistaken, right? The 13 time award-winning babysitter murders kind of set the scene for this. Just tell us a bit about that and how it set the wheels spinning towards this journey and what we got now. Sure. Sure. So basically I was, I was living in LA and I was, um, I was doing a lot of writing stuff at the studio level, but I was getting pretty disappointed in the notes I was being forced to implement. And I was getting pretty depressed about the genre in general. Uh, This was probably around 2012. Uh, and I'd been watching a lot of the Amicus movies um, at the time, kind of catching up on the backlog. And uh, I really loved the format of short, sort of these like short anthology films. And, and I've always been a huge short story reader. I'm a big reader. I love, I love uh, Richard Matheson and I love Ray Bradbury and I love obviously Stephen King. And so I was trying to think like maybe there's a way I can sort of take these sort of shorter stories that don't require a 90 minute runtime and sort of package them in a way that I can kind of trick people into seeing them because at the time, there wasn't really any way to see short form horror except film festivals and, you know, maybe a couple of websites. And so the movie actually started out as, as, as a complete feature length film with uh, four stories that I kind of had circling around in my head. And then the wraparound, which I feel like is oftentimes the sort of an afterthought in these kind of movies. And so uh, for me, I really spent a lot of time thinking about the wraparound, thinking about the characters that sort of inhabit it, inhabit the world, and then sort of tying it all together in a way that sort of becomes a story of its own. And so I, I wrote the script and I sort of started sending it out and people were really liking it. But right off the top, it was like a hard no on the anthology format. It's just not marketable at a studio level. And, 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 and at that time, really, there wasn't much imagination anyway in the genre. And so it kind of got shut down. And I sort of started talking to some of my collaborators and um, we were like, well, we've done a bunch of shorts before. We know how to make shorts. Why don't we make one of the shorts that are in this feature and just to show people what it can be? Because I'm not sure if they're really understanding, you know, it's a kind of a quirky script and I sort of wanted to execute it to show them sort of what it was going to be eventually at the end. 
we picked the babysitter murders because it was the most contained and had the least actors of all the shorts in the movie. And we did a little Kickstarter campaign and we raised some money and we made that as a proof of concept. And so then we, we went to festivals and we had a good run. We won some awards and um, again, sort of coming back to the industry with sort of this proof of concept package and saying like, here's one fifth of the movie ready to go. What do you think? Uh, and again, everywhere we went, um, even people who are really, really, really into the short and really love the short, they're like, oh, we want to we want to do anything. Like, what do you got? And I would say, like, I have this anthology feature. And I said, anything but that. And so uh, it felt like a pretty hopeless, uh, pretty hopeless journey at some point. And um, I stopped. Uh, one of the meetings I had was at this sort of big company that makes very big films. And uh, Allison Friedman was an executive there. And she said, uh, my boss will never make this movie but I love the short and I love the script. Do you mind if I try to raise a little bit of money on the side? Uh, and I said, of course, like anybody would and didn't expect to hear from her again. And I, and I didn't for a long time. Uh, and we were just getting to the point where we were going to, you know, shelve the project and kind of move on to other things and come back to it later. And Allison gave me a call and she said that she had, she had a little bit of money and I was wondering if I wanted to make the movie. And so then we quickly, it was sort of Allison and then Justin Ross, my producing partner and I got together and, uh, we started putting together a plan on how we would finish making this film. And, uh, and so we went out to some line producers, which, you know, for people who don't know, that's the person you hire to sort of create your budget and schedule. And every line producer we met with basically said, there's no way you can make this movie for any less than four times this amount of money you have. So we were uh, kind of back to square one and, uh, and getting very scared because, you know, I, I've heard the horror stories of investors uh, getting cold feet. And walking away. And so I sort of sat down with Allison and Justin and I said, I think if we don't start making this movie, we're going to lose this money. We know how to make shorts. Let's just quickly pull together our resources and start making this thing piece by piece. And so that kind of became a two-year process of making the whole movie in these sort of segments until we got to the end. And it was sort of, you know, started off as sort of decently crude little segments and, you know, kind of at the same level we did the babysitter murders. But it ended up getting to the point where it was just, you know, me and Justin in the woods with my camera. You know, we, we did some puppet work in my living room. I painted like three of the different walls in my house against my better judgment to create, to do pickups for it. So it really, this one came really down to sort of a no money. Started off with an okay scale and then ended up with just like one or two people just not sleeping and sort of shooting it piece by piece. I think at the end, we shot the movie on 12 different cameras, any camera we could possibly find or borrow. Uh, old old cameras that have been outdated for 10 years. It, it really was sort of a, it became, you know, passion project or obsession, depending on how you want to define it. But, you know, once we'd set the bar as high as we had early on, we kind of couldn't go backwards. So it just sort of forced uh, all of us, you know, Caitlin Clancy and the, t the crew, the cast, everybody to really sort of come together and make something special. And I, I think, I think we could see what we were making as it was, as we were sort of moving along and that sort of kept us moving but uh you know it's a scary thing you're the andy hardy of horror you can use that you can use that the andy hardy of horror what's so <laughs> impressive about what you just said what's so impressive about it is it comes across as this massive movie right mm -hmm. from get-go these massive set pieces there's so much eye candy to look at from seeing the boy on his bike driving through that little town. It feels like you're right back in the Goonies again. Even the decisions you make, like the whoosh as he passes the trees, adds this sort of this cinema to it that it's just, this is a giant movie, right? It feels like an Amblin feature from the 80s. 
Oh my God. That's the highest praise you can give. Thank you so much. I mean, I think, I, I think anybody can do it. It's just, what are you willing to give up to sort of get there? And if you're, if you're willing to really just live and breathe something for years, it sort of gives you the ability to hyper-focus on every detail. Like you're talking about the the kid riding through town. We were shooting with Clancy and we, and, and Caitlin, and we had a pretty decent sized little crew for their stuff, but we kept having these shots that we had to shoot of a, of a kid riding through town. And every day they were getting pushed back because it was like, how are we going to take this crew of 40 people, bring them out onto the street, park trucks, set up a bathroom just to have a kid ride by. And, and we kept pushing and pushing and pushing until we got to the end of the movie and, and we were out of time and we hadn't shot it at all. And so what we did is me and my cinematographer and, and Justin, my producer, again, we were like, I, I begged my, my cinematographer, like, hey, will you stick around and just the three of us will shoot these shots? And so um, the whole crew left and, and we stayed back and we, um, a friend of mine's son who fit the, the general size of, uh, of the kid from the movie put on the costume. Oh, wow. We started driving around Astoria, Oregon, shooting these things. And it was amazing because what ended up happening is it was just the three of us. And so Justin, he had, in, in the time we had been in Astoria, he'd become really tight with the, the city commissioner and, and the locals. He put out ads on um, these like classic car forums and he said, hey, we're shooting exterior shots. It has to be a period piece. Who wants to have their car in the movie? Who wants to be there? And we showed up at 6.30 a.m. And there were classic cars on the streets. The police had come in and closed off areas. There was a trolley that they let us put the camera on. We shot on the trolley. And we basically shot, you know, something that would have taken us a week with the full crew in one day, just riding around Astoria and kind of picking it off. And, and honestly, because this movie was so challenging to make because of the budget was so small, I sort of needed that to remember why it is I make movies. Again, I needed that sort of run in gun, just run down the street with the fog machine. All right, here we go. The trolley's coming. Get a police car. Oh, there's a modern truck. Quick, shoot. Hurry up. It was really cool. I mean, that, those little moments are the moments that I think I'll, I'll, I'll never forget about this project. One of my favorite things was the mortuary. Oh, my gosh. That house, it's like delicious. Where is that? Is it an actual? It has to be a structure, right? like an old Victorian house. And was that thing haunted? Because it looked like it would be haunted. Yes. Clancy is showing it off in the back. It is amazing. Yeah. So that's, so it's called the Flavelle house. It's a museum and it's in Astoria, Oregon, which is actually where they shot the Goonies. So if it, if it looked like the Goonies, that's because it, it actually was on the same streets. You can't drive through that town and not hear the Goonies theme song from the opening. And uh, yeah, so the Flavelle house is this, um, this massive mansion on the hill. It's interesting because you can see it in Clancy's window there. And it looks decent sized, but what you, you can't really tell by looking at photos is it's just scaled up. Like the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids gun just gave it a quick shot or two. So the doors are like 20 feet tall. The, the ceilings are massive. Everything is huge in comparison to what you're, what you're used to. So, so it, it was a really cool environment and actually ended up being ideal for shooting because we had the space, you know, to hang lights and move crew and, and sort of do so in a way that we didn't damage anything. And it's preserved. It's historically preserved. So it's a tourist attraction. They've kept it the way it was back in the 1800s. So there's a lot of dressing that didn't have to happen. And then a lot of augmentation that, uh, actually we didn't have to undress things really, did we? I mean, we dressed it. But you didn't really have to undress anything, right? Yeah, I would say it was like a, it was like a almost a hundred percent transformation from room to room. The only room that kind of stayed the same was the viewing parlor, but the office was yeah, a complete redress. And the um, we needed an embalming room, but we that was like a basement level embalming room, but we couldn't 
the basement of this place was just unaccessible to a film crew. And so we right. basically transformed the dining room into the embalming room by making these, uh, these portable bookshelves that we repurposed later in the movie. Right. We stuck them in front right. of all the windows to create, to create it. It was, it was, it was epic. I mean, Lauren Fitzsimmons, our, our production designer really sort of pulled off some miracles. The Boo Crew will be right back. I'm Vincent Price, and you're invited to my party in the house on Haunted Hill, where so far the ghosts have murdered only seven people. So won't you come and make it eight? You'll see human heads without bodies. Mysterious pools of blood dripping from the ceiling. The walls move slowly in against you. Don't try to escape, you can't. The ghosts are waiting, so won't you join me in the house on Haunted Hill? Hurry, or you'll be late for your own funeral. We want to go back to the babysitter murders and talk about just Caitlin, your entrance into this whole world, this incredibly immersive world that required a lot on your behalf. As far as the babysitter murders, an extreme physicality as well. What was it like being dropped into that universe and your experience working with the whole team involved in that? I still have vivid memories of filming that. And it was so much fun. Like it was really like my first experience doing legit horror, like where I was covered in blood and having to, you know, fight for my life (laughs) and um, really get physical with another actor in that way. And so I loved it. (laughs) It was so much fun. And the house that we shot at, and everyone forget that house. Where was it? It was um, Boyle Heights somewhere. I have no idea. Yeah, it was was on like West Adams or something. West Adams. So it was in a really old amazing house that did also didn't need like a lot of i'm sure you guys did stuff to it but it also didn't need a lot of stuff so all of the sets you know throughout this whole experience like the world was really easy to drop into because of like what they did to create it and the locations that they were able to find i just remember being immersed into it and like having to wear wigs and fall through tables and have glass broken yeah. over me and it was a blast <laughs> don't let her looks fool you don't let her looks fool you she gets down to dirt for sure She's yeah i wish there are some parts where i was like i wish i would have gone further there was one time i remember i never will forget it you asked me to redo a take because oh, yeah. it was a little fuzzy and I was like, I don't think I can do it again because the next day, I mean, I told Ben who was, who was playing, you know, opposite in that I told him, I said, really go for it. Like, if you need to like, you like really go for it, obviously try not to hurt me, but like really go for it. We were like wrestling on the ground and he was choking me and you asked me to do it again. And I said, no. And I so wish (laughs) that I would have gone back and done it again. But I, um, I was like, yeah, I think, I think that that I might, you know, that might be it. What a huge diva. Yeah, totally. You know, just like, can't do it again. I'm sorry. But uh, I wish I would have. (laughs) So, 
yeah, there were there were a lot of fun moments and um, things that I kind of wish I would have gone further on. But uh, I think it turned out great. I mean, you know, here we are. <laughs> hey, man, you sold the movie. You sold the movie. You and Ryan. You and Ryan, <laughs> you like. You, know, you should be a producer on this movie. <laughs> yeah, no, it's kind of a crazy experience because, yeah, like, I mean, just hearing everybody was who came aboard this project was stoked to be a part of this project because the team was so passionate. Like Ryan was passionate. Justin, everybody was stoked to make this film and no one ever gave up. And um, they put the work in like, that's just what it comes down to. It comes to really hard work through the years. I mean, I think I would, I mean, I've been having babies these past, I don't know how long it's been six years. So I was, I would have a new baby <laughs> every time we filmed like a new segment or I was pregnant or like some, some life changing thing had happened. So I think like I'm seven months pregnant in some, in part of the mortuary collection. I think some of those shots actually did make it in. I don't think you can really tell, but yeah. I, so it's just fun. Cause this has been kind of a part of my life, like for a was it harder just, having the baby or was it harder sh working for Ryan? <laughs> oh, <laughs> the baby for sure. Uh, I mean, I want to Yeah, yeah, no. Clancy, your awesome voice adds this uh, mystery and dread to your character, Montgomery, and to the movie in general. What was the inspiration for your voice? The script, I think. Ryan wrote it in a style. You know, it had that kind of you know, that kind of amicus narrator kind of style to it. Well, when we first see Montgomery, he's getting, he's getting worried by the, by the kid, but then, you know, he has the, he has the eulogy he has to perform. And, you know, that's sort of where you want to see, Oh, I, I, okay. This is a, this is an old school kind of some, you know, formal kind of dude who, you know, gets, is in love with his own presence and his own voice. And this is his performance and everything. And, and uh, he says weird shit and we just, you know, kind of, kind of move on. And then Sam shows up and just completely undercuts all of, all of that uh, iconic stuff that we're familiar with and, and, you know, starts playing the millennial and teasing him and getting, you know, getting under his skin. But I think he likes it and, you know, and, the, and our relationship develops and we see how, we see the, the range of horror anthology movies, I guess. So, you know, yeah, it was just kind of, Ryan said, that sounded good. So <laughs> that's what I did. <laughs> but it's really, it's really what he wrote. It's, you know, it's the, it's what he wrote. It, it just made, it just made more sense to me to sound like that. And Caitlin, how was that tennis match between you and Clancy? How did you find that on set, that chemistry? When you start on a film, I think that you kind of like, have expectations or like you're, you know, you're kind of wondering like what it's going to be like to work with the other actors and like what the other actors are going to be like. And obviously I knew Clancy, I knew of his work. And so I was excited to meet him and thankfully he made it so easy and he was so kind and just such a pleasure to work with. And so I feel like our dynamic had a lot of realness to it because we, we kind of, had a, an organic chemistry offset. So, um, I mean, off camera, so on camera that kind of came out that organic chemistry and it was fun being able to go toe to toe and with him. <laughs> yeah. Just play. I mean, it's fun to pretend with an actor who's like an amazing actor and to be able to get on set and just 
be a part of that magic and their magic. And then you just, you know, hopefully create magic because you have good writing and a good set and just all of it comes together. Yeah. It was exciting yeah. and, and fun. And yeah, we had, we had, we had, we had good space and you were smart enough to bring your husband and your baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I did have my <laughs> husband. Big strong husband. She had a big strong <laughs> husband and her adorable little baby. So no matter yeah. what she was gonna, no matter who I turned out to be, she was covered. Oh, she was yeah. like, oh. I'm either gonna get a sweet old man or I'm gonna get a creepy old man, and you know, my <laughs> husband can take care of the creepy guy, or you know, my kid will, my kid will try. But she had her whole family there. So, you know, that's yeah, it was fun. as soon as that happened, you know, hey, this is great. <laughs> Let's go and go make a movie. Yeah, and it becomes Andy Hardy of horror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ryan, in the uh, babysitter segment, I noticed some familiar dance moves in the kitchen, like those by Jocelyn Donahue. Uh, curious if that was an homage to uh, Ty West's uh, House of the Devil. Sort of. I, I think that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember we used uh, stills from that when we were at sort of in the proof of concept phase where we were kind of trying to show people what it was going to look like. Here's what it is. It wasn't a direct influence on it, but uh, this is what I learned, which I think Ty probably learned individually before me, which is that if you have a character in a house by themselves and they have no one to talk to, you don't have any way to establish character and or get the audience to get on board with them. And so we were kind of racking our brain. All right, well, how, how does who does Sam talk to so we could at least just get some sense of who she is? And we were like, oh, maybe a pizza guy comes. We're like, no, that's kind of hacky. We're like, oh, you know, coming up with all these different ideas. And then I was like, what if she just dances? Like, people love people who dance. And if you dance badly, it's even better. And it's just endearing. And it's something that somebody can do by themselves that can sort of get like sort of humanize them and sort of latch you onto them to some degree. So we created this sort of idea of a dance sequence. And then the sort of um, where it became really juicy, I think, is uh, when we started getting into what the dance sequence really represents for people who watch the movie a second time and sort of what's really happening beneath the surface. So it's kind of sort of a one two punch. Clancy, I wanted to ask about the makeup process. Like, how long were you sitting in the chair to become the mortician? Oh, too long. You know, that's that's also a function of money. ADI designed with Ryan's sketches and they did a great job. They know what they're doing. And Mo Meinhart was uh, the artist involved. She, she was the one that applied it and, and painted it and made it. And she's terrific and everything. It's not so hard work for me. I mean, I don't have ADD or anything, so I'm pretty good at just sitting still and, you know, listening to the radio or podcast or whatever while, while the stuff is being applied. But you know, when you don't have money, you don't have like the little things, like little support things, like a tr like a special trailer and all of the all of the stuff. There was no air conditioning or you know any of that stuff. We we got up early. I sat in a folding chair. We did it. There was no assistant, although the other makeup artist was extremely helpful and she could she would help when she could because uh, she's also a pro. But you know, poor Mo just just had to just had to suck it up and do it all. And the only reason I say that I point that out is it's not a beef. It's, it's a compliment is because like later that year I did the Mandalorian and that, that had also had a makeup and we had like a trailer. We had like a huge trailer. I was alone in and we had like two guys going back and forth. And, you know, one guy would take a nap and the guy would do, you know, <laughs> it was just like, it was just like locked up, you know, when, 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 
you know, when you got the money to do it, it really goes quickly and it goes smoothly. It took like maybe 90 minutes to put that Mandalorian makeup on. And our makeup took probably took two and a half hours and then another hour or so to take off. But that's, you know, the people that do it and the people that wear it, we're, we're kind of used to it. You know, I don't like wearing it, but when it's a good show, you, you do it right. You, you do it. It's not something I want to make my living doing, but when it's <laughs> something as good as this, you put up with it because it's part of the whole concept of the thing and, and you do it. And she, and, and Mo was tremendous. She also, you know, did double duty. She was, she puppeteered some of the stuff and, yeah, you know, she did a lot. She did a lot. She did your makeup at the end there, Caitlin. That was a. Yeah, she did. I, yeah, I did. That was a day. That was. Yeah. A, yeah, that it was. was she, she rocked, man. Yeah, she put yeah. prosthetics on and created pretty much everything from scratch and like for my makeup. Um, yeah. And it was. Yeah, she was incredible. You really got to yeah. know what you're doing. And she's really cool. <laughs> so she's awesome. She's awesome. And even to put it into some context, Clancy's makeup originally was much more extensive because, you know, his character was inspired by these sort of archetypes that, you know, we all know and love the, the tall man and the, uh, you know, the crypt keeper and um, creep show. I don't know why how I'm drawing a blank on creep show right now. Like the biggest the creep, the creep, the creep, but he actually had much more extensive makeup, which involved, these really deep set eyes. He had these huge jowls. He had finger extensions, which I'd actually forgotten that you had like long finger extensions mm -hmm. and they put him in the makeup and he looked, he looked incredible. But uh, you know, I think it was like right in the beginning, we were at, it was like right before we started shooting. And I was just like, this makeup looks amazing, but I'm losing Clancy and I, and I want to see Clancy. Like this is why he's here. And so we started stripping it away and, um, and we ended up sort of losing a lot of it because what we found was that it was the teeth that really sold Montgomery's character. And, and it was, I remember the, the description in the script was that they were sort of like yellow piano keys and that there was, they, they looked sort of normal from a distance, but if you got close, it, there was way too many of them. And it had this really interesting sort of yeah. byproduct where it was like, as humans, when we smile, we, we sort of smile to put people at ease, but whenever Montgomery would smile, he would become much creepier and so that was sort of a nice little accident that we ended up finding out stand by i wanted just to reference the elevator scene a beautiful stunning scene was that particularly tough to do with a limited effects budget it was incredibly tough that was like sort of a two-part process one part was uh the special effects makeup on the ghost which was also created by studio adi do you guys know who studio adi is oh yeah just by name alone Okay, cool. Yeah, Oscar-winning yeah. Alien, Monster Squad, yeah. all that yeah. stuff, man. Yeah, that's right. Death Becomes Her, Tremors. That's right. So those guys, one of the advantage of having the short was that we were able to sort of send it out to some of these dream companies and say, like, listen, we're you're way out of our, our league, but will you take a look at this? Will, will, you, will you meet with me? And I sort of sent letters out to sort of my three favorite special effects companies, ADI being one of them. And they quickly got back and I had this meeting and they said, how much money do you have? And I told them and they got real sad and they said, fuck it, let's do it. And so they came on board and they, from the very beginning, they sort of had this huge support system and they were like repurposing old effects and creating new ones from scratch. And we had sort of some of their best artists come in almost as favors to sort of make this happen. So we had the ghost makeup, which was, extensive and gorgeous and terrifying to look at even in real life on set was sort of upsetting to look at. And so that was a big component as sort of the focal point. But as far as the rest of the, um, the sequence goes, it's, it was completely done 
using old school uh, Sam Raimi-esque, a two by four and some friends in the woods sort of techniques. It was, I remember we were having a meeting and, uh, and and originally the elevator scene ended in a much more sort of simplistic kind of classic way with the, with the monster coming out of the trunk and sort of horror ensuing. And, uh, and one of my uh, producers joked, he was like, oh man, what if it went anti-gravity? And then we all sat around for like three minutes. We're like, well, now we have to fucking do anti-gravity. Yeah. Great. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so it, it just became, and, and then like, <laughs> we have, uh, we have this three and a half hours of behind the scenes uh, footage that we're working on right now that basically shows all of this stuff and how it was done. But just the, the image of this tiny elevator, three guys with uh, leaf blowers laying on the floor, the couple standing on a turntable, somebody holding up a window with Derek Hardley's character with the two by four. It, it was really like just off frame with some, some real, like some real old school sort of ragtag bullshit. But, but it's, it's again, and that's kind of stuff is so satisfying when it works. Oh God, look at this guy down here. <laughs> He's got the teeth in, doesn't he? Okay. Yeah. He's got the teeth in. Oh my God. Look at those. <laughs> that's amazing yeah those teeth that are, is amazing wow kind of that's crazy are they painful yeah weren't they kind of no, painful I'm, after a while or were they comfy no i haven't worn them in a while i'm not used to them but they're not they're not particularly painful wow. they're gonna be hard to get off now now they're gonna be hard to get hey, off. it was worth it though they look amazing <laughs> just leave them another thing that i gotta mention is and it's more of a comment than a question i guess but just that world that's created in this film, the look and feel of everything kind of adds to this unsettling element. It's almost timeless in a sense, right? It could be now, it could be in the 50s, it could, there's elements of, of everything. There's old TVs in the frat house, we see old vintage radios and like the 1940s boxing gloves hanging from the, it's just brilliant <laughs> and, and it just throws you mentally off and it's one of those things where you can't quite put your finger on it while you're watching it, but you feel something yeah aren't yeah, horror no. movies kind of period pieces though for the most part i mean usually they are the best ones are. don't you think don't you think horror films are, are are period pieces in a way in general yeah but i like that feeling of creating a unique world that feels like it's outside of time very few movies have tried to pull that off successfully because i think the level of detail and thought that has to go into creating that environment without messing it up is a very hard yeah. thing to do. And yeah. I commend you guys on being able to follow through with all those decisions and make it a cohesive voice through the whole piece. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I think that was really important to us from the start because I think the tone of this, of this film is very specific. It's very heightened. It lives, I wouldn't say cartoony, but it definitely edges into sort of a comic booky vibe. Mm. And um, one of the things, like you said, I think that, if you make something a period piece, uh, I think we as an audience understand that it is in our world, but be, there's a separation there. So it allows our sort of, it allows us to go a little bit further and kind of believe in things that might be a little bit more out of the realm if you were just, just to set it in the here and now. So I think that was a one component. And then the second component was just, you know, when we sit around as kids around a campfire and listen to stories, those stories aren't time period specific. Those stories are timeless and, and, and people tell them for generations after generations. So the idea was to try to, yeah, to try to not give anybody really solid footing to understand what the rules of the technology of this world might be, and just to hopefully sort of fall into the, into the story. You are entering another dimension. 
A dimension not only of time, but of space <laughs> and imagination. <laughs> you unlock this door with the key to your imagination or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. <laughs> Actually, for Caitlin and Clancy, uh, what was your favorite scene to shoot? And what did you learn uh, from working with Ryan as your director? Love, uh, you go first, Caitlin. I loved being in the, the furnace. Is that what we would call it? The furnace? The heart <laughs> yeah. of the house. <laughs> yeah, the furnace. That was such a fun set. And I loved watching Clancy on the monitor when I wasn't, when it wasn't my takes and like pulling, you know, I don't want to, you know, do any spoilers, but yeah, just like his, just all of the things that he was doing was so good. And I was just laughing. And so I really loved filming that scene with him in the furnace and like, and then as far as Ryan, I feel like, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, I learned a lot. I sent you a um, script. Just read from the script. I, sent you. <laughs> I mean, he gave me the freedom to be, to be, he gave everybody the freedom to kind of, you know, play and do what they, what they wanted. And I really appreciated that. So, but he's also really like, no, but here's my vision. Like here, like he's very specific on like what, what he wants to. So it's all in the details with him. And I also really appreciated that. So those two things together are, you really feel the support, I guess, as an actor, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, this is what we're that's like. That's like, a, that's like how you describe like a real nightmare of a director. You're like, oh, he's very specific in what he wants. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy that. I like that. Please tell, please tell me what to say and where to stand. Yeah. Like, please do. Yeah. That's <laughs> Caitlin, you took my the the crematorium part was that that was mm-hmm. a great set, and then part of the fun of that was seeing how it looks on film because yeah. some because you can we can see how the embalming room would look on film. We knew that was going to be fun. We knew we, we knew some of these other the office was going to be fun. We knew some of these other things were going to be really fun. But I, I was having trouble envisioning the crematorium. I mean, I sort of knew what it was going to look like, but I couldn't like I couldn't really put it together. And then when it when we saw it on film, it was just so yeah. good. So it good. Awesome. It's so so rich as and creepy and horrible. But I but I loved every scene in the office. You know, I I, I like those little dialogue scenes that we had. I thought we you know, that was that was fun to develop that mm-hmm. relationship and repartee between those two characters. I thought they were thought that was neat. I like that one. Let's see, what did I learn from Ryan? I learned from Ryan what I what I have to, you, ha- you have to learn, you know, I've been at this for a while and you have to, you have to learn this again and again, because sometimes you, you do stuff and, and you do a TV show or you do a movie that has a lot of money or, you know, whatever it is. And, and you kind of, you, you kind of forget that, you know, there's that passion is part of it, you know, sometimes because money takes over so much of it. It's, you know, the stakeholders, all the PR, the marketing, all the, you know, everybody thinks they're the boss. And, and so a director or a creator gets, gets really stepped on a lot. And it was just nice to, you know, go, to go back to the roots, you know, you know, Ryan says, you know, run it through the, run it through the town filming that kid on the bike. Yeah. And it was just me just being there watching everybody, everybody beef, you know, there was, there were beefs, but after the beeps, it was like, okay, we're shooting this now. And everybody just went, went to work and got the work and got the work done. And I think was really, we're really proud of what they did. You know, yeah, we had characters that would beef more than other people, but most, but 
you know, I think everybody was, everybody's pretty proud of this film. And, you know, Ryan was a, Ryan was a good general. He's, he's, he's made for this. He's built for it. He's a good general. I don't, I don't want him ever to suffer any disappointments from now on, but that won't happen. But you know, if I, it, it, what you learn is that if you give, at least if you give this guy his, uh, enough, enough rope, he's going to hang a, a, a winner on you. So. I have one last question. I feel so bad for Caitlin because I remember being pregnant and sitting for this long. She probably needs to get up or use the restroom. So I'm so sorry. Maybe we can answer this really fast. Did anybody keep any props? I love props. And this movie had the most killer props down to the book in the beginning and just all the old looking stuff. I know, Clancy, you kept the teeth. Oh, <laughs> no teeth. way! Yes! <laughs> oh, oh, there it is. Nice. That is amazing. <laughs> oh, that's, that's beautiful. As he holds up the book from the Mortuary Collection. That's gorgeous. So, cool. we got this. The coolest thing. We had some local guy in, uh, in uh, Portland make this, who was a, a leathersmith, and it was, uh, it was sort of... Our art director designed it, Katie, and then he sort of brought it to life. It's like a massive old Bible, basically. Wow. Um, but then my production designer also had him make this for me. Oh, which cool. Is a little tiny one. And it even has, uh, <laughs> even has stories in it. It's wow. crazy. Anyway, it's hard for me to show you guys, but yeah. Anyway. That's, that's amazing. amazing. <laughs> Mortuary Collection coffee table book. <laughs> Dude, so you nice. got it. You can market this. You can market this <laughs> six ways to Sunday. I kept my um, from the babysitter murders. I still have my wristband, my Kirk Stigl wristband, and um, yeah, I think that that's pr- pretty much the only thing that I kept. And you got to end up on this amazing, like Drew Struzan style movie poster for right. the <laughs> film, which is amazing, right? An old school poster, illustrated right? movie poster. That poster's awesome. Everybody on the design team or the illustrators, like, gosh, some really talented people. And like, I feel like what you were saying earlier, Ryan, that there's been like a lot of people that just like came through that. I mean, I have no idea what your relationships look like with those people, but just people that were saw this project and were like, yeah, like I'm going to something that hopped on. And it was like a blessing that yeah. they did or, you know what I mean? It was almost like a, yeah. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but no, it's, it's, they it's, did it it's they were excited of, about it and it wasn't for the money. It was just like, yeah, you know, so there's yeah. so, so many of those moments. And it's one of this, it's one of the, again, the advantages to having the time. I remember when we were shooting the the segment that's all set in the bathroom, I was talking to my friend Christian, who's an amazing comic book artist. And uh, he was really excited. He was like, can I help in, it in any way? And I was like, how do you feel about painting a mural in the bathroom wall? And he was like, Oh, I love that. And I was like, how do you feel about doing a Kraken sequence? And so he came in and hand painted the bathroom wall and this set that we made for like a couple thousand bucks. And we had a world-class artist painting a, a Kraken image on the back wall. And that kind of thing, <laughs> that kind of thing makes it, makes it hard to complain about the process when you, when you see the kind of people that come out and sort of support you. Uh, man, I hope you haven't used it all up. I just hope it's not, I just hope you haven't used all your luck out. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you ended up with is a testament to all that. And it's a love letter, man. I mean, it's yeah, oozing it's, out of every pore of this movie. It's massive yeah. and it's amazing. 
Congratulations yeah. again, you guys. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 168. Special thanks to our guests, Ryan Spindell, Caitlin Custer, and Clancy Brown. See the Mortuary Collection on Shutter as of October 15th at time of release. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shands and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shands, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shands. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting podcast network. Bye! A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.